You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning. All right, today's scripture is John 15, 18 through 16, 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. Thanks, Kay. Good morning, everybody. How's, how y'all doing? Good. Warm. Everyone's doing great. All right. So we're in John chapter 15. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't yet. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our, our passage for today. Father, we come to you and we ask that you teach us now in this time and bolster our courage to live in the world and to be in the world and to be different than the world and not be overcome by the world. And so, Lord, we, uh, we ask that your gospel would, go power, would move out powerfully this morning here, that you be with us now. We ask, Lord, that the gospel would move out powerfully this morning all across our region. We pray for our other gospel-preaching churches in our area. We pray for Downtown Hope. We pray for Williams Creek Baptist Church. We pray for South Shore Church. We pray for, uh, we pray for Bay Area Church this morning, Lighthouse Church this morning, Severn Covenant Church this morning, all the different churches in our area, Lord, who are proclaiming your gospel this morning, that your kingdom would advance, that you'd be known. And so, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be with us now. So we are in this awesome part of John's uh, gospel called the Final Discourse, Jesus' farewell speech to his friends and followers, and he is going to ascend and return to the Father. He's going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, resurrected, and he's going to ascend, and he's going to leave us. But he leaves us with promises. He leaves us with promises of a great reunion one day, promises of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit to us, that we're not going to be alone, promises of answered prayer as we move out on mission in the world. But now we get to the part of the farewell discourse where the reality of the setting sets in. Yes, we have these promises while Jesus is absent, but we're still living in the world. That is the setting. We're in the world still. And the world, in John's gospel, is a word that is negative. It's synonymous with hostility, unbelief, opposition. So that's the setting that we're in. We're in the world, a place of darkness, a place of opposition. So imagine with me a scenario maybe that you have found yourself in. So imagine, this is hypothetical. You're at work, and someone says to you, you'll never believe what happened to me this weekend. My sister's boyfriend came over, and I found out he is a Christian. And in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, what's going to happen next? What's the, what's the, you know, your, your imagination all of a sudden just floods into you, and you know, you, you know what's going to happen next. They're going to turn to you, awaiting your response of what you're going to say. They're hoping you're going to say, like, yeah, how lame. Those Christians are lame, but you know you're going to have to say, well, we're not so bad, you know? <laughs> and you know that the response is going to be, oh, so you hate people and judge people, and you're a part of you know, the church that's full of hypocrites and scandals all the time, and you know that's just the conversation that's coming. 
We're in a world, we're in the world, and we're going to face opposition, and we're going to face tons of misunderstanding. And my heart today, as we preach through this passage, is to change the narrative around Christians and what the world thinks about Christians and how we as Christians navigate through the world. My heart today is to encourage our witness as a church to be so compelling that the stereotype around Christians changes from dread to one of astonishment and curiosity. We ought to be compelling, missional disciples of Jesus in the world. And so the four points today that we're going to go through to help us sort of understand what Jesus' message here is, is the world's opposition, we're going to face it, the world's opposition is not surprising. It's not personal, it's not confusing, and it's not final, okay? I'll explain each of these as we go through it, but the world's opposition, first, it's not surprising, it's not personal, it's not confusing, and it's not final. So let's first take a look at this world's opposition that it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that this is the case. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, and he's talking to his disciples, you know, these apostles, but also he's talking to us, all the future Christians that are going to come from their, their ministry. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time today talking about what this directly means to the apostles. I think that's very plainly clear as you read this. This is going to be highly applicable to you and I today. Like, what does this mean for us today? So, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me, Jesus, before it hated you. Now look at verse 20. I'm going to get back to 19 here in a second, but look at 20. Jesus continues on and says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He said this chapters ago, and what he means by that is this, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus, in this teaching, in the final discourse, has previously said, hey, as I answer, have answered prayer, you're going to have answered prayer. As I know the Father's love, you're going to have the Father's love. And now he says, as they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus says in Luke 9 elsewhere, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Uh, as Jesus was opposed, so will we. As he went, so will we. So it shouldn't surprise us that the world's not going to understand us, that we're going to face opposition, because that's what Jesus, our rabbi, you know, the, the, the leader of our faith, <laughs> experienced himself. As he went, so will we. As he was hated, so will we. Woohoo! Welcome to church, guys. It's going to be great. Welcome to church. Here's a question. Why did they hate Jesus? Why did people oppose Jesus? It's not because Jesus was a jerk. It's because Jesus' value system that he taught and modeled, it challenged the status quo of the world's system. So think about this with me. Jesus had radical love for the lowly. He loved outcasts and sinners. He challenged religious hypocrisy and abuse of authority. Ultimately, his death on the cross showed that death to self is the new normal. He was more loving towards sinners than religious people were and more severe towards sin than non-religious people were. Uh, think about this. Jesus defined greatness as serving. He defined outs insiders as outsiders, living as dying. And most importantly, Jesus taught that our righteousness is not enough to save ourselves, that we can't save ourselves, that we need help from outside of ourselves if we're going to have any hope at all in the world, that we need help. So Jesus, his life, his teachings, everything about him, it just completely flips everything on his head. On his head. The status quo, the presumptions of the world, Jesus completely hits those, contradicts them head on, and flips them on at their head. He disrupts the self-oriented life that the world builds and that we build. He disrupts life as we know it. That's why Jesus was hated. You know, hatred's not where it begins. It begins with being misunderstood, then being made to be inconvenient, then being made to be uncomfortable, and eventually intensifies to hatred. That's where Jesus, that's what happened throughout the Gospel of John. So look at verse 19. Go back to verse 19. Jesus says this about you and I. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, Christians, followers of Jesus, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are present in the world, but we are otherworldly. Our way of life, like Jesus' way of life, calls into question the presumptions of our present age. 
You know, you've heard it said that we hate what we don't understand. I don't know if you've heard that concept before, but it's totally true. When the world sees Christians, when they see us, our community, it's going to be, we're going to be misunderstood. It's not going to be understood, and it might intensify to just opposition. And remember, okay, I want you to remember this. Last week, we talked about radical Christian love, how the Christian community is this group of people who just ooze love for one another. And that love is so abundant and so rich that it, it can't be contained. It moves outside the walls of the church, outside the life of the church, into the world itself. And so what Jesus is saying here is people are going to see our community, how we love one another, we die to self for one another, how we're humble towards one another, how we meet each other's needs, whatever it might be, and the world is going to think we're strange. It's going to challenge the self-oriented life that the world has grown accustomed to and built for itself, and we hate that which we don't understand. And so we're not going to be able to be fit nicely and neatly into a category. People will be skeptical of us. People will misunderstand us. So don't be surprised when the world uh, opposes us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't be surprised when you're treated as different or weird or when people don't include you, don't invite you, write you off or judge you. That's what happens when you're misunderstood. That's what happens when your value system is a threat to the status quo. Uh, I've been reading this book. I finished this book lately. It's called Destroyer of the Gods. It's by an author, historian named Larry Hurtado. It's about how the early church, early Christianity just just overcame all opposition, all odds in the Roman Empire, and became the national religion over a few hundred years. I talked about that a lot. I'm going to talk about it more today. But he summarizes this early Christian writing. It's, not, it's you know, outside the Bible. It's called uh, an, a, the Epistle to Diognetus. And here's what it records about Christians. Here's what Christians were like back when, when everything first began. It says this. It's behind me on the screen. Christians uh, are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom, which was, which was really radically different. You know, if you were religious back then, your religion had everything to do with your heritage. Christianity was the first religion of its kind that broke that mold. That you, you could come from anywhere, be from anywhere, any kind of language, any kind of custom and culture, and Christianity, you could, you could enter into it and live in it. So Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. They follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, yet they also demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship, citizenship to heaven. Christians participate in everything as citizens, but they have to endure everything as foreigners. Furthermore, Christians marry like everyone else, and have children, but they do not expose their infants, referring to Christian, the Christian rejection of infant abandonment. Also, the author memorably states that they share their food, but not their wives. So everything about the Christian faith in its inception was just otherworldly. And it was strange. And it was misunderstood. And it was opposed. But we should not be surprised, because this is the way of Jesus. As he went, so will we. If he was persecuted, so will we. No servant is greater than his master. It is what it is. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is the standard, that this is like the norm. Uh, so Christians, were in the world, but we're not of the world. We're very present in the world, benefiting the world, but we're misunderstood by the world, just like Jesus was. So don't be surprised. But also, secondly here, don't take it personally. Don't make it personal. The world's opposition to us, it's not really about you and I. It's not me and you. So verse 21, continue reading with me. But all these things they will do to you. So you, you're going to be the object of opposition and, and hatred, possibly. But look what he says. They will, do to these, you, they will do these things to you on account of my name. Whose name? Joey's? No, no. Like The opposition we're going to face is ultimately, foundationally, because of Jesus. That's the reason. So for some, the name of Jesus, like the name, when you hear the name of Jesus, what do you think? For some of us here, obviously, most of us here, it's going to be life and power and hope. For many people, it's going to be, you know, authoritarianism and restraint and limitations, and it's, it feels icky, right? The name of Jesus feels icky. But the point is that people, when they misunderstand you, oppose you, and hate you, it's not because of you, it's because of Jesus, 
It's not about you. So here's what this means, guys. When you're not invited, when you're left out, when people are skeptical of you, when you're judged, it's not about you. And don't make it about you. And don't take it personally because it's about Jesus. Any you know, seething hatred <laughs> or any like gossip and slander and people who are just looking at you like you're, you've grown a second head, that kind of hostility or opposition, it's actually going through you to Jesus. It's not about you. And I think this is really important because Christians, you know, now, right now, we're in the margin, we're, we're definitely in the minority in the culture, and I think we feel sorry for ourselves. Like to walk around like we're victims, like it's unfair, like we're in the crosshair of the world's opposition and we just pout about it and feel sorry for ourselves. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says this in a book about evangelism as people who are in the minority. He says, instead of whining and feeling sorry for ourselves because the culture is becoming unrecognizable, Christians should align their vision with that of most mature first century Christians. If opposition mounts to the place where it can rightly be called persecution, well, then we are called to follow the apostles who left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And look, it's really, really important that we get this, that we don't take it personally, that we don't make it about me or you. It's about Jesus. It's on the basis of his name. Because if we don't do that, you will start hating back. If you don't realize that it's not really about you, it's about Jesus, when you are judged, you will begin to judge. You will confirm the stereotype that Christians are mean, that they are judgmental, and that they are disinterested in people. If we don't get this, if you make it personal, read verses 21 through 24. It, it reinforces this. Continue with me. Jesus continues to say, because they did not know him who sent me, they hate you on the basis of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. What Jesus is saying here is, is obviously, like, he doesn't mean that they're not guilty at all. All of us in here are born in guilt. All of us in here stand before God guilty. What Jesus is saying here is those who saw him do miracles, perform miracles, those who saw him make his claims, who were eyewitnesses to him and yet rejected him still and, and opposed him still, he's saying they're accountable before God. That their uh, hostility and opposition, it's rejection of God because Jesus is sent from God. So it's not about us, that, that Jesus is reinforcing here that it's not about you. The rejection is not about you, it's about the Son who comes from the Father. So the world's rejection, it's not personal. They're rejecting Jesus and they're rejecting the Father. Their guilt is not before you, it is before the Father. They're not accountable to you, they're accountable to God. 1 Corinthians 5 says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Like, if there's anyone that we have an opinion about that we have to handle confrontation with, it's those inside the church. That's what Paul is saying here. But outside the church, those outside the church, it's not our problem. It's not our responsibility. He says God judges those outside. So you're not the judge. You know, people are not accountable to me. People are not accountable to you. It is what it is. And so the world's opposition, it might feel deeply personal. Like you might, you might get personally attacked. There might be personal consequences because you're a Christian at this current cultural moment. But even still, it's not about you. It's on the basis of the name of Jesus. And this should disarm you. It should free you to love people, to pray for people, instead of getting bent out of shape Instead of having all these things come back to you, it should make your heart lurge, surge out towards people who are lost. So, look, if you're here and the name of Jesus to you is just like, ugh, it, it's icky, it's offensive to you, I would say this to you. You're closer to the kingdom of God than you realize. 
Like, you're actually really close to becoming a Christian, to becoming one of us, because at least you recognize the cost. At least you recognize the threat of Jesus. You know what you'd have to give up. You know what he's confronting specifically in you and what he's, like, getting near to. You're at that final threshold. So if you're here and you're, you know, you're opposed to Jesus, not interested in Jesus, maybe a friend has invited you here today, let me ask you a series of questions. Aren't you tired? Are you just like tired of trying to be enough? Are you tired of trying to be somebody, be seen as enough, be seen as righteous, uh, gaining other people's approval, being somebody in everybody's eyes? Aren't you just tired of the rat race of self-justification? Are you anxious? Are you worried? As you look down the tunnel of time and down your life, that you know that no matter what you do, what you achieve, it's never really going to be enough, not even for, you know, other people's approval, but for your own soul. Like your soul is crying out to have, you know, holistic, deep fulfillment. And aren't you worried looking down the tunnel of time that it's never going to happen on our terms, in our own strength, in our own way? And so (laughs) Jesus... He might be repulsive to you in this moment, but I'm telling you, giving your life to Jesus will not invalidate you. It will cause you to find you. By dying to self is how we live. By giving up control, we gain freedom. By saying yes to Jesus, we get life returned to us that we've lost apart from him. And so what I would say to you is, you have to take that absurd leap of faith. You have to just cross the threshold and say, okay, it's obviously not working my way. How are things going for me? You know, apart from Jesus, it's not working. And so here's the one man, here's the one man who's ever walked on earth, who has a life that seems to be compelling, who has a, a freedom that he offers people that seems to be compelling. I'll, t- I'll say yes to that. I'll take a risk on that. Now look, most people in here, though, are just fine with Jesus. You know, you might not hate Jesus, you might not be opposed to Jesus, but you're like, oh, he's okay, he's fine. He's my buddy, you know, like, but here's, here's the problem with that is you're actually really far from the kingdom. You're farther than those who hate Jesus because Jesus right now is like a cheerleader to you. Like you're treating him as just someone on the sideline in your life who is going to support you in everything you're doing and never have a problem with you, never going to actually contradict you in your life. I remember hearing this sermon from Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller. He talked about uh, one time he heard a message from this, uh, I guess, a scientist, I think, who was talking about just the fragility of the cosmos, but also the complexity of the cosmos and how intricate and amazing the whole entire thing is. And that she said, that the speaker said, and God holds all that together by the word of his mouth. That is not somebody you ask to be your personal assistant. And so if you're here and you're just fine with Jesus, um, Here's what C.S. Lewis would say to you. He famously says this. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So you eventually have to make up your mind about Jesus. You can't keep him in this ambiguous box in your mind forever. Either he is sent from God and has God's stamp of approval and everything he has ever said and everything he commands is the way of life, or he's nothing at all. He certainly can't just be fine. He certainly can't just be a cheerleader. It's all or nothing with Jesus. So if the world rejects us, it's not personal. Don't become, don't become a judge. Uh, don't become a victim. It's not about you. It's always about Jesus. Thirdly, the world's opposition is also not confusing, or in other words, it just makes total sense why the world would oppose us. There's two explanations given. Verse 25 first is, is one explanation. The wor- uh, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, explaining why this is the case. He says, he quotes a psalm, Psalm 69, they hated me without cause. The reason why Jesus is quoting Psalm 69 here, this is David, originally in Psalm 69, and in that Psalm, David is just being harassed and opposed by all of his enemies, and he literally says, they hate me without cause, 
And Jesus is saying, if that was true of David, how true will that be of the true and better David, like the real Davidic Messiah? If they hated him without cause, how much more will they hate me without cause? And if you're my people, they'll also hate you without cause. But the best way to read this and understand this, okay, is not the world just hates us for no reason at all. Obviously, there's reasons. Obviously, there's motivations. The best way to read this and understand this is the world opposes us for no good reason at all. There's not a well-formulated reason given for the hatred of the world. So, let me ask you this. If we're going to put our finger on why the world opposes us, why uh, the world thinks we're strange and is against us, what would you say? What would the answer be? And I think the no good reason that Jesus, you know, would say is it's protection of the status quo. Jesus upset the value system of the world, and it earned increasingly intensified hatred. This is the story of John's gospel. In John 3, he says, the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, meaning we want to just keep those lies, keep that illusion, keep control of our life, even if it means we're just dominated by it. We want to live in the illusion. We want to live in the darkness, and Jesus and his people shine a spotlight in that darkness, unsettle the foundations of that illusion. Um, You know, since having kids, I I, I cannot watch movies where, like, where kids die. I, I can't do it. It just messes with me because, like, that's real. <laughs> like, that's, that's, like, that's real to me now. Like, I would never, ever want to, like, experience that, and so I don't watch it. Rebecca and I, we, we rented John Wick, the latest John Wick movie, and I, we couldn't finish it. Like, we turned it off halfway through because, like, there was so much violence in it and death in it, just, like, treated so casually. Like, it just, I just couldn't, like, watch it anymore because, like, death is real. Like, that's reality, you know, I just don't want... Treating it so casually, just it, it, it was unsettling for me, an unsettling experience. I love Keanu Reeves, okay? Give me Keanu all day. But listen, I just can't watch John Wick. That's the effect of Jesus. That's the effect of Christians. It upsets the illusion. We want to remain in that safe convenience. We don't want to like, have a, re- a reality check on our lives. We want to stay in sort of that self-protected little bubble where we get what we want when we want with no authority, with no restraint, with no limitations or accountability. Essentially, like, what's the no good reason for the world's opposition to Jesus? People just want to do what they want without feeling bad about it. You get that, don't you? Like, the world's opposition, it's not confusing. It's not rocket science. It makes complete sense. We don't want to do what we don't want to do, and we, want to feel, we don't want to feel bad about getting what we want, doing what we want. So no good reason is that people don't want to subject themselves to a source of authority that's going to call them to the carpet. The other explanation is, is continuing on in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Here's what Jesus says. And I want you to listen. This is really interesting. He says, they, meaning like the religious people of the day, Sadducees, Pharisees, the religious elite, even like, you know, the, the common Jewish people, he's talking to his disciples, of course. He says, They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. The opposition that Christians face, that you and I face, here's what's interesting. Here's what Jesus is saying here. It will be for moral reasons. People oppose. You'll face opposition because people think that's the right thing to do. That's the moral thing to do. I read an article from The Atlantic recently about what's taking the place of the church. As the church is in decline, as people are leaving the church, uh, it was an article about what's taking the church's place. And the article says as people leave the church, they're investing whatever moral fervor they have into politics with evangelistic zeal. Like the new form of evangelism, the new form of, of devotion is politics, you know, moral advancement of everyone's different agendas. So the reason you and I face opposition, it's not simply because we disagree with people. It's because we think, it's because what we think is moral is thought of as immoral. And what we think of as immoral, the world thinks is moral. So although the world is secular and absent of belief in God, the world 
is more moral than it's ever been. Like people are more, even though we live in a godless, like irreligious time, people are more self-righteous and concerned about righteousness than ever before. Folks, th- like this is our current cultural moment. Let me break it down for you and just give you some context for this. Uh, ever since the Enlightenment, the individual has been divorced from institution and community. Before the Enlightenment, authority and moral standards that the community agreed upon were a good thing, but eventually they became a bad thing because if they contradicted how we felt and what we wanted, then they became sources of oppression. So over time, the self, like the individual, has become the authoritative reference point And now the greatest moral evil of our time is opposing the self with its feelings and its desires. So this is why you'll notice that politics right now, it's less about policy and more about rights. Uh, Politicians articulate emotional appeals more than they articulate policy appeals. And so since we now, years later after the the Enlightenment, are the, the authority of ourselves, like the reference point for reality is ourselves, We as finite and fallen people, since we have the final word, we do what then? We create confusion, moral confusion, moral chaos, because the morality we develop and enforce, it's full of contradictions, it's without restraint. You know, like the moral advancement of the age typically ends up as immorality. And what's interesting is that for all the confusion and all the immorality and all the inconsistencies, the world right now is more self-righteous than it's ever been. People are more offended than ever before. Everyone's mad trying to justify themselves and prove themselves to be moral enough and approved by others. So say all this not to like make you uncomfortable or to make you feel like a victim, like we're outsiders and the odds are against us. I say all this to actually give you empathy for the world. Beneath, beneath all conversations and all opinions and all disagreements and all hostility is this impulse to be justified. Every human being, every person who has the image of God on them has this impulse to be moral, to be righteous. So you have to understand when you feel the hatred or when you feel the opposition or judgment, That's somebody reaching out and trying to seize for themselves righteousness because they don't feel righteous. They don't feel whole. They're reaching out for wholeness. One author says it better than me. He says it like this. It's not on the screen because it's too long. Get ready. Here we go. He says, I've read it before, um, but I think it's really good. It's on the point. He says, why is it that we seem more fixated on righteousness or enoughness than at any other time in recent memory? At the risk of gross oversimplification, for centuries we've relied on capital R religion to tell us that we're okay. Clergy reveal not only the shape of true righteousness, but also how we might come to be associated with it. Church provided us a place to go with our guilt and shame. For more and more people in the modern world, that no longer feels like an advisable or available option. Some, like Nietzsche, predicted that we would find peace and the deconstruction and emerge into a new and gloriously liberated mode of human existence without a divine law to make us feel poorly about ourselves. So words like guilt would lose their meaning. And alas, if our, cultural, if our current cultural climate tells us anything, it's that the needs addressed by religion, hope, purpose, connection, justification, enoughness, haven't diminished as churches have the psychic energy hasn't evaporated. It can't. It has to go somewhere. With all altars off the table, fresh targets have cropped up all over the place. Righteousness, you might say, is running amok. What's more, it often seems that the further we retreat from shared religion, the more contenders emerge to fill its place. These new religions go by different names, but function more or less the same. If we used to go to church once a week, we now go every hour. So what the author is saying there is, church used to be a place where we found moral guidance and and, and direction and a form of righteousness and enoughness. Now that we're no longer in that age, now that we've drifted from that, now it's ourselves and our own desires and our agendas. And so, hey, look, 
it makes sense why the world opposes us. Because we're more moral than ever before. So even the world's hatred shows just how much the world needs Jesus. So it's possible to develop empathy for your enemy because deep down, they're actually screaming out for salvation. Their hatred is a grasp at salvation. So the world opposes in all these different ways. But lastly, you need to know this. It's not final. Or another way to say that is it's not overwhelming. It's not to overcome us. It's not final. Verse 20. Go back there with me. I'm going to look through the passage now. I've purposely skipped some of the, like the brighter points of Jesus's message here. So go back to verse 20. He says this. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If they kept my word, there will be some who also keep yours. So what Jesus is saying is there will be some who hear the word and keep it. And now this shouldn't surprise us because God has always called out of the world a people to himself. Even in verse 19, the verse before, Jesus says to the apostles, I chose you out of the world. So God has always had a remnant, a people within a people for himself all throughout time. You remember the story of Elijah? Uh, Elijah challenges Ahab and all the prophets of Baal to this showdown on Mount Carmel to see if Baal or Yahweh is the true God. And so they build this huge altar. The prophets of Baal build this huge altar, and they dance for all day, all night, hundreds of them just crying out to Baal to send fire from heaven, and he does nothing. And then Elijah steps up. He douses the entire sacrifice, this huge sacrifice with water, so much so that there's pools of water around it. He asks God to send fire, and God sends fire, and it licks up all the water even. It's the, the, I mean, the showdown, it's over before it began. This awesome moment of triumph and victory for God. But then you know, you know how the story goes? Like Elijah then runs for his life and goes into a, a time of despair and fear for his life after this, feeling sorry for himself, feeling like a victim because his life is at stake. And God tells him, don't feel sorry for yourself. You're not, don't pity yourself because there are 7,000 who have not yet bowed their knee to Baal. There's a remnant still. Remember Paul in Acts chapter 18, he goes to Corinth and God tells him, go on speaking, go on and do not be silent, he says, because I have many in this city who are still my people. Paul, go in because I have called a people out of the world in this city. And so what this means is this, yes, the world opposes us for all these different reasons and it might be hard, it might be discouraging at times, but we should not hang our heads we should walk out into the world with confidence because God always has a remnant. God always chooses a people. God always calls out a people. Our confidence should be sky high because God has always had a remnant, and he still does, even in this time, in this world. And it continues in verse 26, more confidence for as we move into the world. He says this in verse 26, when the, spirit, uh, when the helper comes, the counselor, the guide comes, whom I will send to you the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. So here, here's like, if you were to, to like reverse engineer this, here's what Jesus is saying. We go out into the world, we model the gospel, we speak the gospel, and the Holy Spirit is involved in our living and our speaking, and He is going to bear witness of the Son and of the Father. And so the world is going to see our lives and the Holy Spirit is going to capture some people's hearts and capture their imagination and they're going to know the Father and the Son. It's going to be brought to bear on their heart. They're going to be caught up in that love. They're going to, they're going to be won by the Holy Spirit. He's going to bear witness. He's going to bear witness persuasively and effectively. Uh, in our last members preview, somebody asked Taylor, hey, what's, what's Reformed theology? And Taylor sat there for a second that said, you ever heard of Tulip? Uh, raise your hand if you know what Tulip is. We know what I'm talking about. All right, good people. All right, nice job. Tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Uh, I am the Tulip. Irresistible grace. I love it. I love it. Because what it means is this, that God is going to find you and that God is going to bring you to him through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness and it's only a matter of time until God makes you his and adopts you into his family. Like God's sovereign grace is powerful and cannot be stopped. And so God has a remnant 
we move out into the world not feeling sorry for ourselves and not despairing. Because God has a remnant. And because the Spirit's going to bear witness and, and pull people in. But also, I want you to partner that irresistible, powerful grace of God with the heart of God. Let me just read for you a few different passages here. It says this in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. It's referring to Jesus' delayed return. And then he says this. As Jesus delays, He does that, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's heart. He desires people to come to know Him. Ezekiel 33.11 says this. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in all of the Old Testament, by the Old Testament itself. This is like a monumental verse. God reveals himself to Moses, tells Moses most centrally who he is. He says, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands. That means like thousands of generations beyond this. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the third and fourth generation. And you might read that last line and think, oh, that's kind of like a sad note to, to end on, that he visits the iniquity of the third and fourth generation. But you're supposed to compare that with what has just been previously said, that he forgives iniquity to the thousands of generation, and he visits the iniquity only to the third or fourth. Like, what this verse is saying is God is on the edge of his seat to forgive. What God is most excited about is showing grace and mercy and his steadfast love. John 3, 16, we're talking about the world and the world's opposition. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so we move out into the world confident, not only because we have God's powerful, sovereign grace moving and acting through our ministry, but also His abundantly loving and excited to show mercy, Father heart. And so sometimes, you know, in a generation, like um, doing ministry and sharing the gospel and seeing people come to know Jesus, sometimes it just feels like a grind, like it's a slow grind. That's how it can sometimes be, but listen also. There are times where God, by His power, just accelerates things spiritually. And what might take a generation takes a day. What might take decades takes one conversation. God does that. It's called a revival and awakening. And you know when He does that, when that happens in the course of history, throughout the Old Testament and throughout our time? That always happens when things are most bleak. When the church is in massive decline, when people are apathetic, and the world is most hostile. That's always when revival and awakening have broken out. So listen, like, I'm not reading this passage and hanging my head like, man, the world, you know, it's odds against us. I'm moving into the world because of this passage, knowing that God's heart is to save, He's powerful and mighty to save, and He always has a remnant, and it's times like this that something special happens. So we should be confident in the world, not sheepish, listen, not sheepish, not cynical, not pessimistic, not disparaging or despairing. I follow a pastor on Instagram who's uh, in Los Angeles. I know I'm about to talk about Instagram in my sermon. Get ready. We're in the world, okay? Not of it. He says this, and I think this is just so good. He said, I heard a preacher rail on Los Angeles as a godless city. I wish people outside of L.A. knew how much God's fingerprints are all over this city. So much image of God, so much common grace, so many faithful Christians, so many great churches. God is doing a beautiful work here. So my question to you right now is, which perspective do you want to move through life with? The angry preacher who's always got a bone to pick? Or the hopeful lover of the world who bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things? I'm going to be a lover of the world because God loved the world and sent his son. So look, if we believe that God is a remnant, that the spirit bears witness, that God's sovereign power is matched by his willing heart, then there's loads of potential in the world. <laughs> loads of potential even still for God to do something in our time. Last thing, verse 4. Jesus says this, and this is really interesting and really encouraging. He says, 
I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you, underline their hour, that word hour. It's so important in the book of John. In the book of John, Jesus always talks about his hour. My hour is coming. My hour is upon me. And that word hour, it's always a reference to Jesus' crucifixion and death. That's what Jesus always means when he talks about. So when you see that word, that's always what it references. But it's interesting here. Jesus says that it's their hour, the world's hour, right? It's ironic, and it's ironic on purpose. And the point is this. When the world opposes us, it may seem like it's the world's hour, but really it's Jesus' hour. If there's any hour that's upon us, even if it's in the world's hour, Jesus understands the hour to always be his, his moment of victory, his moment of salvation. So when the world seems to be winning, that's actually when Jesus is at work. The world's hour is always his hour. And notice the exhortation he, taught, he gives in verse 4. He says, if you get this, you will remember that I told these things to you and you will persevere. You will not grow weary. When, you know, Jesus is saying to his disciples, when I die, and you don't expect that, and you're just stunned by it, I'm telling you all this now so that you're not overcome by the world, but instead you march out into the world with a heart of love and full confidence because their hour is actually my hour. So don't lose heart. Do not lose heart, guys. If we forget this, okay, if we forget that the world's resistance is not final, then we will repeat the failures of the last 100 years of the church. I remember talking to a, a pastor, PhD, who got his PhD in church history. I asked him, why did you, you select that? He said, if you don't know your history, you don't know your future. If you don't know your history, you can't correct the mistakes and have a better future for the church. And so we have to know our history if we're to know what our future holds so we don't make the same mistakes. And the church in our history has forfeited its place in the world and has delegated its place in the world. And this is our closing thoughts, okay? Just a few more minutes. Hang with me. The church, in response to the world, okay, has forfeited its place. This happened at first in the beginning of the 20th century when modernism was just this new idea that uh, started just overwhelming the church. I don't know if you heard about the Scopes trial in the 1920s. A teacher in Tennessee was convicted for teaching evolution in the public schools, and a preacher named William Jennings Bryan, he was the prosecutor in that trial. He won the case, but he looked like an absolute... He won the case because he had cultural power still, because it was culturally Christian still in the 1920s in Tennessee. But he looked like absolutely absurd because he was just not ready to handle the intellectual argument. He was not ready to handle uh, what was going on in that trial. He looked unprepared to deal with the conversation. And a few days later, after he won the trial, he passed away. He just like, like his body broke down, his heart gave out. And then after that, what you know what happened? Like modernism skyrocketed. Modernism is the belief that there's only material and physical, no immaterial, no spiritual. And it crept into everything in our, in our society, it crept even into the church through theological liberalism. And you know what happened in this time? Evangelical churches, churches that believe in the gospel and believe in biblical authority, it, they retreated into the corner in what is now called like the fundamentalist movement. Religious fundamentalism is hiding and fighting from a bunker instead of going out into the world as compelling missional disciples. So the, the church we've seen through history has forfeited its place in the world, hiding and isolating, scared and retreating. And then only a few decades later, Jimmy Carter ran for president and he ran as like a total Christian. And the reaction was just mania. The church like finally found a champion who would fight their battle for them and give them back cultural control. And they thought, all that we have to do is vote this guy in, get this guy in. And then soon after, this moral majority was formed, where Christians, Catholics, Mormons, whatever conservative group was there would join, all so that Christians could get the culture back to something they could tolerate. Uh, politics are fine. Politics are great. I'm not, I'm not talking about that today. I'm just saying there, there is totally a place for Christians to have these conversations about politics, and politics are important. But the point is that the church delegated her place in the culture by allowing politicians and elected officials to do their job, to stand in the middle, to stand in the crosshairs of the world, rather than the church stand tall and absorb those punches and be a witness for the gospel and live as compelling missional disciples. So the church can either forfeit its place in the world and retreat 
or delegate its responsibility in the world to stand in the thick of it and be a witness, or the church can be compelling, a community of compelling missional disciples who are in the world but not of it, not offended, not surprised by the offense of the world, but also not overcome by the offense of the world because this hour is Jesus' hour. Karl Barth uh, was a German theologian during World War II, and he saw the complicity and compromise of the German church, and he wrote a bunch about it, and it's translated from German. It's a little clunky, but here's what he said about the church. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. That's us. That's what we're called to be a community of compelling missional disciples who, when the world looks at us, they might be, might be offended at first. We certainly will be misunderstood at first. But what we stand as is a community that is full, as pro- full of promise, that points the world to a life, a better life, a better way. And so, what does compelling missional disciples do? They stay. They persist. They do not retreat, they do not live in fear, and they are not overcome. They move out into the world knowing that the world's hour is actually Jesus' hour. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, make us this kind of people who are not overcome and afraid or discouraged or despairing, but who are moving out into the world in total confidence, confident in your promises, confident in answered prayer, confident in your love and in your sovereignty. God, I pray that you give us a heart for the world like your heart for the world, that we would love the world even when we are opposed and judged and misunderstood and slandered. Lord, I pray that we would return good for evil, not evil for evil. And So Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and we ask that you'd make us a community of compelling missional disciples in the world, but not of it in your name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.